Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Oliver Traldi. Oliver is a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, a writing fellow at Heterodox Academy, and a columnist at Arc Digital. Welcome, Oliver, to Savage Minds. It's just been crazy. We start the new year and then a week into the new year and we're like, wait, this looks like last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't look much better. It doesn't look much better yet. That's why the whole, you know, the whole, um, you know, anthropomorphizing the years is something that I, I've never quite understood. You know, it's really funny because up until, up until, um, 2017 which was the first year that Trump was in office everybody you know it was always like oh it's 2014 you know um don't you know that you're not allowed to say that anymore you know and it was this big thing of progress and everybody's supposed to realize what's right and wrong every, you know more every year and then starting in 2017 it became the opposite everybody's like oh you know something bad happens they're like oh you know 2017 you know that's how it is um, and obviously 2020 was the worst of those with the pandemic. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't really, the whole, the whole years having personalities thing. Um, well, it's true. Even no. the word, you mentioned the word progress. And that made me think of a performance piece by Sino Segal. I don't know if you saw it. It was at the Guggenheim back around 2002. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced, I have mm -hmm. to say. Um, I was finishing up my PhD and my director, Vincent Crepenzano, said, you have to go and do this. I've been part of the show, but you go. I won't be doing it anymore after today. So I went and you go to the entrance of the Guggenheim and, you know, the entrance is like bookshop on the left and then vast entrance with the spiral upwards. And you're greeted by a little five-year-old girl who welcomes you and says, welcome to you know uh, this show and she asks you questions and takes you for a walk it's very mad you know alice in wonderland and she asked what my definition of progress was uh -huh. and i started to elaborate this definition and she handed me off to someone who was then about 12 years old and the age group uh -huh. went up and up as we reached the top of the guggenheim and ever since then you know i was thinking about this because i've done a lot of work with a wonderful Indian philosopher, Ashish Nandi, who talks about this notion of progress in terms of modernity. And uh -huh. I guess we could even refer to Marshall Berman's work, uh, All is Solid That Melts Into Air, I think. But this idea that we posit progress as something that's very linked to modernity, that's very linked to this notion of betterment. But of uh -huh. course, these are philosophical notions. What does that mean to be better? You know, like we can calculate that if we're talking about the 100 meter dash i think we'd all agree that better would be a faster time right but yeah. we don't agree with that when it comes to covid wednesday at, <laughs> at the capitol yeah. you know things like this everyone has their own take so that when i you know uh i have a whole set of questions here for you but I, I keep getting sidelined. I'm, I'm, I was supposed to finish up a piece yesterday on Wednesday's events in Washington. Uh -huh. And I keep thinking, you know, I was thinking about this. So you mentioned the word progress and I'm thinking about this Tio, Tino Segal piece in, in the Guggenheim and thinking about, wait a sec, we're, we're in the midst of a media war right now. And a lot of what happened on Wednesday 
IMO is really uh, has been spurred on by the media wars, which have us uh -huh. as clicking. We're clickbait. We're part of the clickbait. It's almost uh -huh. like Facebook uses us as their product, but we're the product everywhere, including for CNN and Fox. Yeah, and I think one of the most one of the most lasting pictures or sets of pictures that I think is going to kind of stick in people's minds from Wednesday, all of the pictures of people taking pictures of themselves, taking the selfies, you know, if there's going to be a civil war, it's going to be the selfie civil war, right? Um, Absolutely. People, you know, people taking selfies of themselves and they didn't know what else to do, right? They got in there. They didn't, you know, they 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 were like the dog that caught the car. They didn't know what else to do, and all all they knew what to do was take a selfie. I was watching, <laughs> I was watching a kind of combined live stream. A lot of these people, when they were storming, you know, storming the Capitol, that were part of the mob. The uh, you know a bunch of them were like right wing, you know, or or alt right. Mm -hmm. um, sort of streaming personalities you know they had podcasts and things like that and so they had like periscope or, or whatever streams set up where people we people could see from their perspective and the entire time all they were saying they were they were in the building all they were saying was things like you know we've got twenty thousand people now watching we've got thirty thousand people now watching you know it was all it was completely about the spectacle of it it was very strange to me because immediately when people were saying on my wall, huge debate still going on, FYI, about this is an insurrection, this is a coup. I'm like, uh, no, this is not a coup. These people got in there. Did you notice that they looked like they were looking for the museum guide? They had yeah. no clue what they were doing. And again, what you said, I had told someone else, yes, that they were taking selfies. They were more interested in, look what I've done. Uh, and some of them are currently being fired from their jobs because of that. Mm. One moron wore his work badge. And, right. uh, you know, aside from the the political animosity and the the breaking and entering, just the illegality of it. OK, I'm I still am challenging people to, like, analyze what this is about, because. I really think this is about class and I think it's about class from a right wing perspective that lacks the vocabulary to speak about it because they were grasping for straws, hoping Trump yeah. in his 11th hour was gonna bail them. Well, clearly he's not a person who's going to speak for the working class. I mean, he does right. do the MAGA bit, but he's not going to take action on it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not, he's obviously not any kind of, you know, genuine working class hero or anything like that. Um, that's, it's completely posturing, yeah. 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 And so, you know, I was thinking of this because, you know, I reached out to you and this is all very related. <laughs> yeah, I reached yeah. out to you after reading your excellent piece, man. Oh, I mean, the you. left has turned thank into you. a guild hall. I, I, you know, I'm going to link to it in the description when I mm -hmm. post our, our discussion. But, you know, you write the guild, <clears throat> the guild's existence and fervor probably traces back to the twin phenomena of the ailing economy and what Peter Turchin calls elite overproduction. Right now, a lot of people who will read your article might not, you know, get some of the references. I know like Paul Cockshot speaks to me a lot about Turchin, which is how mm -hmm. I delved into his work. What does this mean? I mean, could you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah. So, you know, I actually think I may have misused the concept of elite overproduction in this article. Um, I think that Turchin, you know, 
Turkin has something very specific in mind in his theory, but I think most people have taken a more general lesson from the theory. The general lesson is something like, um, you know, we have, we have more people going to college. We have more people um, uh, going to graduate school, going to professional school, law school and medical school, business school, things like that. Uh, getting uh, advanced degrees, um, more people in, you know, looking for jobs that are, that are kind of um, require an education that take, um, you know, that involve reading and writing, you know, dealing with complex ideas, um, you know, as the nature of the job. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't know if, I don't know if I have, if I know um, in I don't know if I'm actually using it in a rigorous way in the article. Um, what I what I meant to be talking about was just the phenomenon of just the pure numbers of how many people um, are are going going to college now and to graduate schools now compared to even even 20 or 30 years ago, um, and the sorts of you know, in the article, I focused on kind of material effects. I think maybe, maybe even a little bit too much focus on that, but the, the sorts of incentives that that provides people and the sorts of um, ideology that it can inculcate. Um, the article was, you know, I sort of wrote it all in one go. There was this, I think I talked about this at the beginning of the article. I saw it during the, you know, the protest last summer. Um, which obviously bear some similarities and also have some differences with what happened on Wednesday. Um, now, last summer I saw this video from, uh, I think the New York BLM protest where somebody was yelling at a police officer saying, um, you know, you don't have to go, you don't have to go to school as long as I did to become a police officer. You know, you don't have to go to school for a whole four years to be a police officer. Um, you don't have to study history to be a police officer. I should have your job, you know, right? Um, because right. I know about the history of policing as an institution or something. That's right. That's right. And you made the comparison to the person also making this very, uh, or maybe it was a different person saying you have less education than a hairdresser. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have less education than a hairdresser. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of my friends from college, I went to a small liberal arts college where um, very hard to get jobs anyway, but I graduated in 2008, right into the financial crash, right? Um, and so a lot of my friends um, kind of, again, the, the twin, the twins of material incentives, um, which were not cool to acknowledge, plus, um, the, uh, you know, the kind of just the popularity of, of socialism on, you know, and, and kind of left-wing views in general on a small liberal arts college campus um, led to a lot of my, my friends being involved in Occupy um, in 2010 uh, or whichever year it was, you know, I'm getting old. I can't remember exactly what was what year anymore. Um, <laughs> Yeah, sadly. 
Um, and one of my one of my college friends drew this um, or created this document or or drew this diagram, which became, I guess, a little bit viral at the time. Although I don't even know what counts as viral anymore. You know, with Twitter, uh, things can su such small things can become so viral so quickly. So I don't even know if this was viral by modern day standards or just kind of like a little bit popular. Um, but she drew this diagram where, you know, there were all these things of, you know, what is Occupy really about? What do people really want? Things like that. Right. And she drew this diagram that was just all these interlocking, like, you know, criminal justice, you know, environmental degradation, you know, wars in the Middle East, you know, da, 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 you know, and there were like 30 intersecting circles that had all these lines drawn between them and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was just this thing that was meant to look like this kind of complex, you know, hydra headed <laughs> monster of intersectional, you know, science, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Um, and I just looked at it and I was like, this is the most anti-political. It's one of the most anti-political images that I've ever seen. It's an incredibly technocratic image. And it's something that even at, that I didn't understand. You know, after four years of college, you know, because I studied like ancient Greek and stuff in college, you know, I didn't spend that much time thinking about um, the, the way that one political cause might actually be the same as another political cause, which is something that a lot of people are often saying about their political causes. Um, <laughs> True. So, uh, so yeah, it, it always, that always stuck with me. And what stuck with me was that there was, there were these competing, from the political perspective, you shouldn't want to think of, if you're trying to build a popular movement, which I think, you know, at some degree, you know, that's what, a, you know, in general, that's what you're trying to do in, in American politics, you're, right? You're trying to get people on your side. Um, I mean, okay, maybe that maybe that's too strong. There are kind of other institutional maneuvers that you can be doing and things like that. But one thing you might be doing is trying to get people on your side, and that's certainly what people were doing with Occupy, and that's what people were doing with BLM. Um, but there's also this incentive to um, to say, well, the kind of the 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 weird education that I developed, you know, which doesn't help me to be an accountant or a computer programmer or to be a policeman or a hairdresser, you know, or a plumber or anything, but does help me to find a way to claim that some political cause is the same as another political cause or something like that. That education kind of has to find a use somewhere, you know, it has to find um, an implementation somewhere. Um, and I have, you know, to find a position, you know, in society, I have to make it, I have to make it as though my education is a requirement for that position, right? Because that's, you know, that's my credential. I've learned how to do this, right? Um, and so what I posited in my piece is just um, in, in the kind of intervening 10 years, not that like Occupy and BLM are like you know, they're, they're, they're just examples, you know, they're just meant to be kind of symbolic, right? I'm not saying that they were, that anything was the catalyst for anything else or anything like that. Um, but in the intervening 10 years, there's, we've had all, this rise in all these stories about, 
Um, you know, first of all, people losing their jobs for, for saying the wrong thing, often for saying very normal things, um, but not saying things in the right way, not using the, the sort of language that you would learn at, um, at a small liberal arts college if you were majoring in, um, you know, sociology or anthropology or something like that. Um, and, uh, and also a rise in these sorts of positions that have to do with managing the way that people talk to each other um, and managing um, the relationship of corporations and other institutions to these kinds of sets of political causes. Um, you know, the, the myriad diversity and inclusion officers, um, vice Training. deans of colleges. Yeah, exactly. Workshops, all of the Robin DeAngelers. You know, I think they, over the summer, everybody was, you know, people, there was a lot of pushback against Robin DeAngelo's book, White Fragility, because of, you know, kind of, because it's kind of nonsense. But I thought, you know, the buried lead is, you know, she's laughing all the way to the bank, right? Absolutely. You know, the buried lead is she's become, she's not like me, you know? If I wrote a book of nonsense, people would also call it nonsense, but I would just, you know, if I wrote a book of nonsense, the point would be to have written a book, right? For her, her money is from corporations coming in and they say, tell all the white people here, like how fragile they are. You know, that's the, that's the training that they do, right? It's, it's this, you know, the white fragility workshops and things like that. So well, it's a and great that, sell yeah. too, because it allows corporations like Google and Apple that rely on her and pay her to do their trainings. They pay her a lot. <laughs> it's a paradox of the 21st century to make white people superficially, I'm putting this all in quote marks, feel yeah, yeah. guilty about their collective past. Every word goes in quotes there. And in the end, never before have we talked so much about whiteness. <laughs> you know, like yeah, white yeah. people are always front stage. And I've talked to many people, I myself, you know, uh, I'm one, but I've talked to people who are not white and uh, they, they've noticed the same thing as, uh, as, yeah. as well as many people of European heritage who are like on the left and saying, whoa, and people on the right as well saying, mm -hmm. this seems to all about, be about white people. <laughs> yeah. It's just framing it falsely. It's, it's very false consciousness, you know? Yeah, there's a kind of, there's a kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, a self-flagellating narcissism. Um, but, but I also, but I also think that, um, you know, I think, so I also had a piece on Robin D'Angelo this summer, you know, I don't think it is interesting that D'Angelo herself is white and that her book became the most popular of this set of books. Um, but it's not as, you know, there are kind of hucksters who, you know, who are black or Hispanic or, or Asian, um, or, or any other race who say the same sorts of things that D'Angelo say, right? Like, Ibram Kendi is not somebody who disagrees, you know, to my mind very much with D'Angelo. Um, I can't really speak that much to, to, to anybody else, but certainly the, and if you, if you look at a, you know, a college campus where they have some, you know, one of these protests about whiteness, they say we need to dismantle whiteness, like whatever that means, you know, the sort of, you know, dismantle, it's always interesting to me when kind of the, the language of manual labor um, is used for these very abstract concepts. It really makes it seem as though it's really like make work, right? It, it kind of exactly. fits my thesis. It fits exactly. the guild thesis very well, right? Like we need, yeah. well, we need like the construction workers of ideology, <laughs> right? And they're really working with their hands here, right? When it's all just this gibberish. 
Um, Sheep rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it, you're absolutely right. And there's this, this pretense. This is what annoys me the most of it, is that by speaking about a problem, we're fixing a problem, which mm-hmm. fits, fits right into pop psychology of the 1980s and 90s and fits right into this kind of ethical blindness to a, a, what's become a sort of cultural narcissism, which you do discuss in the article in terms of identity politics. I mean, I find identity politics is very linked to narcissism mm-hmm. um, because of the way, I mean, you mentioned, you know, people losing their jobs. Well, for the past, gosh, since 2012, I've been working on the transgender debate in the UK, mm-hmm. especially. And oh my God, I mean, you know, the death threats I had when I first started writing about this in the next year. Right. And it, it was really shocking to me. I'm thinking, I'm being threatened. I mean, the, the article was anodyne in terms of it was quite balanced. I, I spoke to both sides and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was really shocked by how vociferous this lobby was. And then yeah. worse than the lobby itself are the friends of the lobby, like the P flag. Remember them in the 1980s, uh, with the late 80s, I think, when you'd see P flag, the parents of gay and lesbian kids or people oh, okay, yeah. in the gay pride floats in New York. And they were all about feeling good because my son's gay or, you know, more tragically, sons who had died of AIDS and the mothers were present. Mm. Okay. But that became institutionalized within gay and lesbian organizations in the states and internationally. And people began to uh, dissolve that kind of gay mantra once AIDS became a curable disease in 1996 with Crixivan. And that's when identity politics sort of took off in the gay community more so from the idea of everyone has a gender, which is a debatable ideology here. So. I, I was working on that and I was just, then it was when I hooked into the fact that left-wingers who were even people reading my work on counterpunch and elsewhere were saying I was like some kind of neo-Nazi. What? Right. Because I said that biological sex is immutable, that we are sexually dimorphic as a mm-hmm. species. I mean, hello? Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's funny to me because, and you know, uh, there's some people disagree with me on this and some people agree with me on this, but it never struck me as immediately. It's funny because there are people on both sides who seem to say, who seem to think that there's this innate link between the identity politics and um, leftism in some way, right? You know, there's on the one hand, you have sort of like the Jordan Peterson's, you know, oh, this is like neo Marxism or whatever. And on the other hand, you have, you know, you have all the, all the progressives who, who, like you say, assert that you might be, you, you might be a neo-Nazi based on your, you know, your view of the, the metaphysics of gender or whatever it may be. Um, and I, uh, and it, it just, you know, I think that what I've been happy to see on the left, um, of course, some people do this well, and some people do this not well, but there's this there's this growing group of people who are just saying, you know, like one way or another, this isn't the same, whatever it is that's going on here is not the same as, you know, a materialist analysis or a class struggle um, or anything like that, right? It's not, it's not like an indelible part of a left-wing project. It might not even be political in the sense that, that they're interested in, right? It might, it might just be another kind of project. 
um, of course, I think there are, you know, there are different analyses of, um, of what it actually is, right? You might say, well, it's not a leftist project, but it's still a good project, right? Like it's a good project. So somebody could just say it's not the same as leftism, but I still kind of think they're both good or something like that, which would be fine. But there's also, as you're saying, there's, there's the more, um, there's the more, uh, there's the analysis that, well, you, you mentioned narcissism. Um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you, you might be a fan of Christopher Lash and people like that. Um, and um, I, I think that the, 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 the Lash fans, you know, being Christopher Lash has grown in popularity so much recently. Um, the Red Scare girls love him and a lot of people on the right are growing to love him as well. Um, because I think people think that the, you know, the narcissism is just such, especially in the social media age, right? You know, I think even I, you know, a lot of people connected to identity politics, but also to social media. I think in a lot of ways, even my life, um, compared to a normal life, you know, from, you know, a few decades ago or something, um, could plausibly be called narcissistic. I mean, I, you know, when I, when I make, when I make a new recipe at home, I take a picture of it and I show it to 12,000 people on Twitter. Right. And I watch, you know, I watch adoring messages come in. Right. And if somebody ever says something mean to me, I can just block them so that I don't ever have to hear it. Right. If somebody says that food looks like it doesn't taste very good, I can just, you know, never, I can, the site has a built-in function, which which is to reduce harassment. So I never have to hear anybody say that my food doesn't look delicious. Um, so I, I think e even you know even a lot of lives that have nothing to do with with kind of po political trends that might relate in one way or another to narcissism, because of the nature of social media, because of the kind of Instagram age. Um, and before we had the Instagram age, we had the thought catalog age, you know, people writing all these, all these personal essays about their own lives. And people thought, you know, the, the main way to be political, this is a, you know, I think this is an underrated little era in the internet um, around maybe, I don't know what it would have been, maybe 2011 to 2016 or something like that. Um, but there was a slew of every, you know, every piece that went viral was something about, you know, somebody's personal experience. Here's my personal experience, um, you know, experiencing sexism or racism or something like that. And it was just viral article after viral article on sites like Thought Catalog. Um, I haven't seen a Thought Catalog piece linked in years. Go to CNN today and you, there's an article that cracked me up, Naomi Campbell, about her experiences mm. of racism, which I don't doubt she's had. But I was sort of thinking about the infamous telephone incidents with her maid <laughs> and wondering if there was going to be an, an interview with her maid about what it's like to receive uh, mobile phones breaking up or open her skull by Naomi Campbell. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we've been so focused on this thing that I thought was done away with, with Darwin race, and mm -hmm. we are getting it recycled. And hasn't it been successful, especially during lockdown, right? The, the recycling of race? 
Yeah, and of racial descent by the media, especially, you know, the way that the I'm sure you noticed the coverage every time Black Lives Matter protesters were outside, you could put money down that New York Times, CNN, MSNBC would be like, you know, peaceful gathering, blah, blah, blah. And you could put money down equally that the opposite mm-hmm. would be said on Fox News. And the same thing for the evaluation as to how social distancing was carried out or not. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the differing treatments of, of BLM uh, last summer, um, I mean, I think that plays into the into the renewed salience of race, but also into the kind of polarization of the media. Um, you know, I, I think it's no longer, it's, it's no longer really even debatable that of, you know, of the cable news shows, for instance, there are liberal cable news, you know, there, there are, sorry, not cable news, but I don't, I don't watch TV, so I don't remember which is which, um, you, but of the major networks, you know, there are some that are liberal and there's one that's conservative, you know, of the, of the major papers and magazines, we know which ones are liberal and conservative, right? Like, right. just as National Review is conservative now, the New Republic and the Atlantic are liberal, right? The New York Times is liberal. The Washington Post is liberal, just like the Wall Street Journal is conservative. Um, there's not many, you know, I don't think there are there are real questions about this. I think part of that came about, um, it was already happening before Trump. Part of it came about in response to Trump because, again, you had this growing group of people of my generation, of the of the millennial generation who said, how are, you know, how are, we found an opportunity to use what we learned in college, right? What we learned in college is to say, we're going to, oh, we're going to critique this idea that's been institutionalized and we're going to associate it with some, a bunch of isms, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a journalist millennial who's taken all these classes in sociology or whatever, you're going to be like, oh, the institution of objective reporting is actually you know, and then you do your kind of like, you know, free association, you spin the wheel, right? Oh, objective reporting is actually white supremacy, right? Oh, I spun the wheel and I came up with like the way to associate one thing with another thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Look how, look how, uh, look how I've undermined the system by spinning the wheel and doing exactly what I was taught to um, at my expense of college. Um, and that's part of what you talk about in your article in terms of yeah, Hall, exactly. that we're yeah. all being trained to react in a very monolithic way, ultimately. Yeah, ultimately, I think so. But I think, you know, when it comes to the newspapers in particular, I think the newspapers are in a difficult spot here because they went all in on Trump and now they don't have, you know, I don't know what's going to happen if they're critical, if they're critical of Joe Biden when he's president. You know, I don't know all the people all the people who subscribed to the New York Times and the Washington Post because of all the democracy dies and darkness stuff. You remember when the Washington Post, they changed their subhead or whatever you call it to, to democracy right. dies in darkness. It's just the corniest, like, I wouldn't put that in a Star Trek episode. You know, it's the corniest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. You know, it's not, it's worse. You know, it's, it's less, you know, it wouldn't be in Braveheart. It's too corny to be in Braveheart, right? Like, um, <laughs> and, but it was exactly the right amount of corny to get subscriptions from a lot of people who think, oh, 
me reading the New York Times is itself like an act of resistance, right? And I think that there's an association between the, you know, for years and years, it's been a progressive idea that there's this kind of awareness raising or consciousness raising, right? Which is, which is one of the main uh, sort of strategies or techniques. And I, I do, I'm not obviously not an expert on awareness raising or consciousness raising, but to me, it seems like part of it, the idea that, oh, sort of just by reading, just by being informed, right? That makes you kind of an activist in one way or another, right? That makes you involved and in doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I think the newspapers are going to be in a tough spot because that was their whole sell, right? That was their whole, you subscribe to us and you're fighting Trump, pay us a dollar a month and you're fighting Trump just by reading the New York Times, right? It's a great right. business move, right? Like it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great advertising slogan, um, but it's obviously false. Um, it's false in just an incredibly straightforward way. Um, so, so yeah, I think, um, well, I don't know. What were you asking? You were asking something back about the article. Oh yeah. Well, it was just about this idea of um, how, our contemporary society, especially in the West, is, and not just in the West, because I've seen this exported through NGOs. Uh, for instance, many NGOs in India, I saw firsthand uh, talking about sex workers. I mean, I found this a bit appalling. We're talking about young girls being referred to as sex workers. Mm -hmm. uh, no. <laughs> and this whole empowerment by language is complete bullshit. Yeah. I'm sorry. And um, only, you know, I say to say, it's not about white people, but only Westerners could come up with such a deranged notion of empowerment. Uh -huh. uh, people around the world know that they know what you need to survive in this world and making language sound empowering isn't it. I mean, it reminds me of the 1980s when they changed the terms of secretary to, oh, it was something administrative assistant. That was right, it. yeah. And then that got morphed again and later in the, in the knots. But, you know, you, you talk about, you say any job is a job for the guild. In mm -hmm. short, you lay out a clear argument whereby ideological virtue must now be followed by anyone worthy and pure enough to hold a job. And we're yeah. seeing this too with the protesters who are being fired. I mean, uh, right or wrong, bad costumes and mullets aside, those people outside who did not even go into the Capitol and then the ones who broke the law and went into the Capitol, let's... You know, I was a bit alarmed to see that now people are losing jobs because of political protests. This is a very slippery slope that I do not want to get on. It's one that you would think in principle, you would not think that people on the left, uh, you know, historically the left does a lot of protesting, right? Like the BLM protest last summer. You wouldn't think that they would, that they would want there to be a precedent of people losing their jobs for attending protests, for participating in protests, but I think what you see is they they assume, and maybe they're correct to. Um, I sort of hope they're not because I just have this general view that people should be forced to live by the rules that they kind of impose on others, right? I just think of that as as being a nice way that I would hope that the world would be. But sometimes the world is that way and sometimes it isn't that way. Um, I think a lot of people just believe 
we have enough kind of control of institutions now and corporations and things like that, that it's never going to come back on us, right? It's, it's, it's always going to be the case that attending a right-wing protest, because there's been this kind of march of, of through the institutions and this ascent of woke capital and this group of people who are now all the social media teams and the human resources departments and things like that at large corporations are going to be, you know, largely involved in this sort of millennial ideology. Um, I think the assumption is, well, this is never going to, this president is never going to kind of come back the other way, right? It's never going to be that our causes are, are penalized in this way. It's never going to be that our political participation faces these consequences. It's always going to be somebody else's because we're always, practically speaking, going to be the ones who decide what things like major corporations do and don't do, right? Um, you compare, I mean, I find it so funny, but maybe, you know, maybe progressives are right. Like maybe woke capital is the right way to do things, you know, politically. I found it so funny looking at, first of all, last summer, all the corporations that said, you know, like, you know, Chevron stands with Black Lives Matter or whatever. It's Chevron. You're like, come on, give me a break. Um, but then you had the same thing, you know, Chevron is against the protests in DC, you know, all the companies putting out statements on Wednesday about something that has, it has nothing to do with their product. It has nothing to do with their purview. Um, and uh, one of my friends, I don't know if you know the Steakums Twitter account. Um, it's, I don't even know what kind of product, it's some kind of beef product, um, but it's become very popular because uh, I have a friend, a Twitter friend who, who does the tweets for them. And sometimes under the Steakums account, he just kind of tweets like a normal person and just says what's on his mind and stuff like that. So it's this very jarring, you know, corporate account that sounds very much like a normal person, but sometimes tweets about steak products. Um, and he said, um, he said on Twitter, you know, I'm getting all these emails from people uh, from newspapers saying, what is Steakums, this beef product? What does the company have to say about the protests in DC, uh, the storming of the Capitol? And I think his idea was like, why would Steakums, why would I have anything to say about this as Steakums? Why would it be? So I suggested the I suggested that he should email back. Um, there are right ways and wrong ways to beef, um, you know, because beef this ver you know means to have a problem with something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I I think it's so funny that that um, that this has become this has become institutionalized and that corporations have become, you know, have become progressive politically. Um, and this fits with, this fits with the, the kind of distraction theory, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a theory of what's going on right now with identity politics and with, you know, what you called narcissism and things like that, that, oh, this is it's not a new theory, right? This theory goes back decades and decades. Um, to the 1960s, if not earlier, and the new left right. of the 60s. There's this theory, this stuff is just, you know, all the young people who might be, you know, in the right place to overturn the capitalist system or whatever. Um, well, what are, you know, when they could be encountering the class struggle, what are they encountering instead? Oh, they're encountering, you know, 
a guide to, you know, the 50 genders or something, right? Um, and that's what they're, that's what somebody's telling them is political and that's what they're taking to be political. Um, and so they're involving themselves in, you know, you know, months long processes of introspection about what their gender is and posting on social media about how nobody can say that they have this gender or that gender um, because they've taken that to be the struggle of their times. And the view is that's really just, you know, nothing could make a corporation happier. Of course, corporations aren't, you know, the sorts of things that are happy or unhappy for better or for worse. Um, but nothing could make, you know, the, the people behind the scenes happier um, than thinking about, um, thinking about uh, which of the 50 genders they have today rather than class struggle or, or whatever the other issue is, environmental degradation or, um, you know, I, the, the camps in China, you know, take your pick, right? All the things that, um, all the things that uh, a corporation might not want us to think about um, we're being distracted from. Well, I don't know if weird. I go, I don't know if I go in for the distraction theory um, to be honest, but I think the, the kind of point lurking behind it is like, um, you know, you have to, at some point there has to be a divide between politics and introspection, right? Introspection itself, deciding, you know, here's all the isms that I'm part of, you know, here's what I'm going to put in my Twitter bio, you know, oh, you know, all, all of the Twitter, you know, whenever I get attacked by a lot of people on Twitter, it's always the, you know, and it's not just, I don't want to be one of the people who's like, don't put pronouns in your bio. You can put pronouns in your bio if you want, but it's like, there's six things, right? It's like a political slogan, you know, another political slogan, the pronouns, you know, a bunch of little flags about, you know, what your identity is and things like that. Um, and, and it's just not, you know, it doesn't seem to be me to be clearly part of political action because it's a part of personal branding, right? And that's where the narcissism comes back in, right? In the Instagram age, which is kind of the age after the thought catalog age, I think, it's all of, you know, being associated with a certain ism, you know, being a Marxist Leninist on political, uh, on social media um, is a matter of what social clique you're involved with um, and kind of who you want to attack and what positions you want to take. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of a kind of developing a personal brand. Um, and there is, there's something incredibly corporate about the idea of having a personal brand, about the idea of um, defining yourself in, in you know, these kind of easily digestible categories. Um, and uh, it doesn't seem to me to be particularly political, even when ostensibly the categories are political categories. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. We're seeing color culture get into this uh, snowball effect. Uh, everyone's calling out each other so much that the colors out are soon getting called out. We've seen this recently. 
uh, as well. I mean, you, you have to really tread carefully as to what you say today. And it makes me worried that we're losing the ability to have discussions and just sane discussions. We don't have to agree about everything. Yeah. But like, I just got a message um, while, you know, I was waiting to speak to you. And uh, someone said, oh, take a look at this. Apparently someone has written a piece that involves my name. And they said, do you want to respond to this? And I don't even have time to read all the things people want to say about me. Mm -hmm. Let them say it. Um, and here mm -hmm. we are worried about how someone sees it. So it's funny when you use the, the example of taking photos of your food that you cook. I compare pronouns to cooking. I love cooking. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell people, I don't insist that you say that my apple pie or my tartartin is the best you've ever had or else. But that's what the pronoun debate reminds me of because we've gone from what was a political formality of, of politesse to an insurrection. And I will not be asked to do something or else, not in terms of something that I know to be untrue. So yeah, the me 20 years ago used to be one of those women that would call men who wanted to be <clears throat> called she, she. I do have to say, I regret that now simply because mm -hmm. standing in, two, in 2021, I see what this has accumulated. The political will of what has become a very well-funded lobby. I mean, oh my gosh, they're commanding the language of journalists. You see articles where, you know, woman blazes down her house and rapes another, you know, and you're like, mm, legally, rape is only physically possible with a penis. So you know that something's off when you see headlines like that. And women in the UK have been organizing because of simple mm -hmm. pragmatic issues of safety within sports and the Rugby Federation ruling uh, last year, uh, prisons, the fact that they're finding out that over half of transgender identified prisons prisoners in UK prison system are, are sex offenders. And these are things you're not supposed to say. And I'm thinking, wait, have we really gotten to that point where we can't say truths because we're going to offend people? And if that's the case, we need to have an adult discussion about why feelings matter more than social facts. And, and, and then back to historical material readings, which have really preempted the whole discussion of poverty and class, the working class and the people, like it or not, in the capital. Uh, they went about it very wrong way. But there are class issues in the United States that we have seen that Democrats have not addressed, and the Republicans just as badly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's, there's things you said in there that I want to, so I don't know, I don't actually, the only things that I really know about the gender debate are kind of from the philosophy side about what we call the metaphysics of gender. Um, I don't, I don't know, um, I just, you know, I just want to express, I don't know anything about, um, you know, statistics about prisons um, or, or, or anything like that. Um, I do think the point, the point that you, you made that I think I agree with is about, um, well, it's just a psychological thing. Um, I'm also, I've always been, and I still, you know, try to, I'm disposed to try to use people's, uh, desired pronouns um i think you know i think it's kind of a matter of politeness um 
but there is, and this is something that Jordan Peterson, I remember saying, there's this thing of when, when you're doing something out of a desire to be polite, and then somebody says that there will be consequences if you don't do it, the psychology changes, right? If politeness is being kind of extracted from you by some sort of force or threat, then you really stop wanting to be polite, right? You start wanting to 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 push back against it. Um, and it becomes very hard to figure out, you know, what you actually want to do in a situation where you're under some kind of threat. Um, and I think that in a way, this is very negative of me, but in a way, I think that that's also the reaction that people are sometimes looking for that people, you know, people who are trying to manage and, you know, I guess police is the, is the, is the current term who are trying to sort of, you know, surveil the way that other people talk and bring consequences to them for it are always looking to goad others into being offenders, right? They're always looking for ways to kind of prod people, um, into saying something that they can get them into to trouble for, right? Um, I, which is which is not which. By the way, it, you know, in my experience, it's not. I'm one of these people. My view on on the gender debacles is like, you know, I know quite a few trans people, and my view is that it's not like this sort of sentiment is not the mainstream of the trans people I know, right? Most of the trans people I know are just very much kind of trying to quietly pass and you know don't want attention drawn to them being trans. Um, well, I hear you. I mean, I've, I've known many people who are self-identified transgender people. And, uh, you know, I'm all about do what you want, be who you yeah. want. But I, I'm a leftist and I do believe in a historical reading of material reality in the sense mm -hmm. of if I tell, if you tell me you're poor, you can't pay your rent. And my response is, hey, Oliver, just ideas having Buckingham Palace. I give it to you, in fact. You would think I'm insane. It would be quite insulting. And mm -hmm. um, what happened to me is, uh, well, I taught queer theory at NYU and the University of Montreal. So I am guilty in everything I'm about to tell you because mm -hmm. within academia, when I got my PhD and I've got job offers, even before I got my PhD, I was asked to teach queer theory at Hunter and mm -hmm. in Hunter College. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Hunter, yeah. Yeah, and I was, you know, great. I know the whole gamut. I mean, I think some of queer theory is brilliant and I do exclude Judith Butler from that. I think her book, Gender Trouble is convoluted and badly written. And I, mm -hmm. I think that the better queer theory are, are people like Eve Sikofsky Sedgwick, Epistemology of the Closet. But this was never a movement initially about claiming wrong body or internal gendered feelings, not at all. In fact, it was a revolution against that. It was about uh, mainstreaming homosexual desire for our, uh, until the mid nineties for certain. Mm -hmm. And it became something else in the late 90s. And uh, that's when I had, you know, moved on to other issues. I was working on uh, terrorism and, uh, and, and uh, transpossession in Morocco and the Middle East and so forth. So I was in another vector. But 
when in 2012, I was living in London and I was told about what was going on with trans politics. And I was told some stories that mm -hmm. left me thinking that this one woman telling me the stories was insane. I mean, I literally thought, oh, she's just, uh, you know, I'm just being honest here. I thought, oh, she just hates men. And she was, uh, she's a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And I just thought she's a little nuts. She was also drunk. Well, God, I spent the night reading up on what she was saying. And I was rather embarrassed to learn that every word she said was true. And this had to do with internal politics, certain councils, certain ways that women, especially lesbian rights were being turned in the UK. And I was a bit alarmed because what was happening was in fact, there's this thing called the cotton ceiling where uh, males who identify as transgender women were putting pressure on young lesbians to have sex with them. And this was all well-documented and I was a bit like, Okay, these are not the people I knew. Like I knew, a, I, I know a lot of transgender identified people and this is not what they do or mm -hmm. think, but there was a shift. And I thought it would be a bit, you know, uh, pig headed of me to not acknowledge this shift, even though it was something that I had been detached from because I've also been living outside of the West for uh, many years. Mm -hmm. And this kind of detachment from historical material readings of the body and of history disturbed me because how can women have rights if they're not allowed to say the word woman? I mean, Jordan Peterson addresses this in an inverse way, but I mean, he talks about pressure, you know, a fiat to to reproduce political narratives to use. Yeah, he talks pronouns. about forced forced speech. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and women. Yeah, and women have been prone to compelled speech for much of our, you know, existence historically, I mean, as a group. And I, I could see where feminists were getting upset. And I could I started to interview mm -hmm. feminists at the end of 2012. And then, oh my God, there was this huge thing that happened in January of 2013 in the UK with two journalists, Suzanne Moore and Julie Burchill. When that happened, and there was not one single, not one single UK professor speaking out, I grew deeply upset. And that's when I started working full time on this article that came out six months later. But that's when I knew something was really wrong. And that's this, this politest that exists in British society to well, we I use the pronouns because and I was like, well, that's what I did. But here we are, it's one person and another another next thing you know, it's a wave of people using the pronouns. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are getting these pronouns, just like Eddie Izzard the other day broke down into tears when a woman on, you know, BBC something, I forgot which one said to him, uh, and I don't, as you can tell now, but said, uh, yeah. oh, I, I still do just for listeners, anybody listening, I still use yeah. pronouns. Just anybody yeah. Listening. yeah, yeah. And if they want to send you hate mail, it's uh, whitehouse.com gov or whatever I'm joking. <laughs> but you know the thing is is i won't as a political um rebellion against this not because i wish trans identified anyone ill no but i think we need to stop uh pathologizing a social condition that worries me and it worries me as a woman because i have had to deal with this kind of but you want to naturally and you should naturally and why aren't you doing this naturally my whole life as most females have and men and boys also to a different and lesser degree and sometimes to a more degree in terms of vestiture you guys are allowed to wear much less diversity than I. I can I can tell you when I when I was living in New York City, I didn't even wear quote unquote women's clothes. I was wearing mm -hmm. suits and I have a freedom of dress that you won't have without raising a lot of eyebrows and perhaps physical violence. And Th this, this was this was this was um this was uh 
this was a mainstay of the men's rights movement back in the 90s that women mm -hmm. women could wear men's clothes but that men couldn't wear women's clothes um yeah yeah it was it was a really interesting it's funny if you go back because there, there's sort of there there are some like debates about these things that you can find online the current culture wars you know they all have in the 80s and 90s they were all kind of already you kind of see the the start the beginnings of them um and uh you know in, in a lot of the same people are involved um mm -hmm. in various ways sometimes on different sides um but yeah th this this was this was a the, the early men's rights um th there's a there was a kind of televised debate on a on a some sort of a, a woman's show in the 90s that i love it was between a male feminist a men's rights activist and a pickup artist. So it's kind of this, like this triangle of people who all hate each other. Um, right. And um, and the men's rights activist uh, came in came in wearing a dress because he wanted to say to the female audience, like, you're gonna mock me for wearing a dress, but you advocate for, um, you know, for for women being able to wear suits, you know, and do stereotypically masculine things, but you're still gonna mock me. Um, and that shows that men are kind of more restricted in their in their in their self-expression, more restricted to the gender roles than women actually are. True. I think the, the 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 thing that I wanted to say that came out of what you were saying is um so you're one of the things you said, and I find this really interesting because um it connects to the like the relationship that politics has to history, which I think is is a very complex one that I don't know if anybody has articulated in the right way yet. Um, you said something that I think of as, in a way, the beginnings of conservatism, mm -hmm. um, which I also have felt in myself to a degree, um, despite, you know, I only vote for Democrats, I support liberal policies. Um, but what you said, it's more of a, less of a view about politics and more of a view about history, where you said, um, you know, I did all these things 20 years ago. Um, and they were the right things to do 20 years ago, but they sort of feel wrong because of what they turned into, right? It was that I, plus this, I should add, that I mm -hmm. did it completely ignorant of the fact that if I'm one person doing it, I'm not alone perhaps doing this. It's not mm -hmm. that I've grown up or anything like that. No, I mean, I think I was really naive about what this means now look if you're gonna make a really good meal and you've invited me and it's my first trip to your house and the meal sort of is mediocre mm -hmm. i'm not gonna outright tell you the truth uh i'm not gonna outright lie i mean may maybe i would i don't know i might say oh this is delicious and it's not mm -hmm. i don't know but there's a very big difference between that kind of one instant, uh, spontaneous politesse out of a lie, mm -hmm. than my having to, you know, I'm 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 a lesbian. Do I have to repeat trans women are women and you're a lesbian to a man who to me is a man, and mm -hmm. and then when I say this, I find myself wanting to make all these footnotes because we've been speaking about science the past for five, 10 years in terms of, but I believe that science is not a belief system in terms of human sexual dimorphism. And so when I mm -hmm. really clicked into what the lesbian feminists were telling me back in 2013 and 12, I, I, I really found that this 
movement turned out to be much more homophobic than I ever dreamed. In fact, naively within gay rights movements within New York City, where the T was being slowly added, I thought at the time, I was much younger that this was progressive. And it's simply not. I mean, this is the problem is that what looks conservative is often not and what looks progressive is often conservative. And I think I was one of the many people in the gay and lesbian community who thought saying she was the progressive thing to do. But in fact, I think this is the more conservative thing to do. I think there's nothing more conservative than my saying, Oliver, you made a strudel. I'm going to call you she because only women cook. I mean, which, of course, is an outdated uh -huh. nonsense. Yeah, there is a kind of essentialism. I agree with you that there's a kind of essentialism. You know, people say, oh, you know, it's very quick. And I've heard I've heard a lot of these concerns from lesbian feminists about kind of in both directions. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I've the one concern that I don't hear much anymore is about um, I, what do they call it? Like lesbian erasure. Right. There's this worry that a girl who's 14 or 15 and realizes she's attracted to other girls and maybe is a bit of a, a tomboy, a little bit butch or whatever, you know, I don't know, Les, you know, I don't know terminology for these things, right? <laughs> but, you know, but maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe isn't a very girly girl, right? Isn't very stereotypically feminine. Right. Um, the lesbian erasure worry is, you know, in the current environment, maybe she's just gonna think, um, this means that I have to transition, right? Mm -hmm. This means that because we have more a more essentialist view of gender than we had maybe a few decades ago, um, this means that I actually am a man um, because I'm not kind of a stereotypical woman. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know how, um, uh, you know, I don't know statistics on these things. I don't know how many people this this happens to. Um, I think if it happens to, you know, to anybody, it's it's certainly bad for that person. Um, and these things have to be balanced. I think, you know, one, one thing that's difficult in these debates is, um, you know, nobody wants, people just don't acknowledge that there are these problems, right? That there are these, these challenges and these potential uh, disasters. And nobody wants to say, we have to balance our awareness that this sort of thing might happen with our, you know, our eagerness, eagerness to acknowledge um, and support, um, uh, people's um, uh, self-identification. Um, well, that's an interesting and premise. So, however, what does it mean to support one? That's, you see what that's, I'm saying? Yeah, that's that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I completely agree, and that's that's the sort of issue that I haven't thought too hard about, and kind of don't want to get into <laughs> too much. Um, Again, uh, White House yeah. at <laughs> yeah, send, yeah, yeah. Send all mail, all mail about about what I've said to Donald Trump. <laughs> um, or to, you know, to whoever, uh, you could probably just leave it on the steps for the next, next wave of rioters. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I wanted to say about history, what I meant, what I meant by conservative wasn't really, I don't mean politically conservative, but I think there's a kind of historical conservatism, which is just, I'm, so I'm, I'm a philosopher, right? Or, or a mm -hmm. philosophy student, at least. So I always just think in terms of what sorts of arguments people make. That's kind of the way I characterize people, um, what sorts of, you know, what sorts of arguments do people find convincing? Um, and the, the most conservative historical argument um, is what we call the slippery slope argument, right? So the slippery slope argument is just, um, okay, it wouldn't be so bad. You're proposing that we do X, right? It wouldn't be so bad to do X 
But once you do X, you're kind of opening the door to Y and to Z and all these other things are gonna start to happen. And those mm -hmm. things are gonna be bad. So even though X might actually be good, we shouldn't do it because it's gonna lead to these other things down the line. Um, this is an argument that is often taught as a fallacy because it's not a deductively, right? right. Nothing in the premises guarantees that this will happen. Um, but actually it often does happen, right? Like a right. lot of the time things do kind of snowball into other things that you don't expect, right? And social trends kind of pick up steam um, and things like that. Um, I... And so when I said conservative, what I really meant was kind of the use of a slippery slope argument, which is kind of, um, you're saying we kind of start out with the with a politeness, right? A polytest, you call it. Yes. We yes. start out with, th with, this, with this kind of uh, just having good manners, right? Um, and not trying to offend specific people. Yes. And then this leads to, oh, maybe it would also be polite to do this. Oh, maybe it's incumbent upon us to do this. Maybe it's politically necessary to do this That's right. um, and then it becomes another thing maybe it's polite to do that and then that becomes politically necessary and you kind of you know a lot of things kind of start to fall into the basket of of actions that are required of us and positions that we have to publicly take and things like that well it's um, quite ironic what you're saying it's exactly what i was saying but judith butler in gender trouble talks about this she uses a hegelian argument to talk about subversion and she says that when we subvert the line of subversion moves over and over and over and and in a way i mean she didn't mean it for political discourse as we're discussing but mm -hmm. i do feel like that my using she in 1990 both disavowed my own ability to 20 years later say but hey i was just being nice because these are these are social facts i mean I don't, you know, walk down the street and see someone walking their dog and say, what a cute kitten. They would probably think I was nuts um, or that I didn't speak English well or any number of scenarios or I had COVID and was out of my mind at the moment. But they, you know, we interact with each other because language does mean something. And what I find really troubling from the left is that we have abandoned actual political action in favor of the easier trend of language. And it's not subversive. Mm -hmm. Language is just a theater here. You know, I mean, think of, you know, William Burroughs and his notion of language being a virus. It's just been extrapolated all the more into this kind of Leotardian language game. And I don't feel that comfortable being part of a left that is now, I'm sorry to say, but the left is wholly on board with misogyny when they have labeled me and other women as TERFs. I mean, I'm not a radical feminist. I'm not even a self-described feminist. Not that I would have a problem doing that, but for issues of my wanting to sort of step outside of the groups to be able to more objectively report on things, I try not to be involved with groups. Right. That's just my own political line. And I, I'm, I'm sort of- But even, even that is something that people, even that is something that is kind of disdained now, right? Even, even the idea of trying trying to be less political so that you can be more objective, you know, that <laughs> yeah. is, that is kind of, you know, the old ways are dying. That, that is something that, you know, that's the sort of thing that I talk to people about and people tell me, oh, this is a myth. You know, the idea, the idea that you can be less political, you know, being less political is just a way of being more political. You know, it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. you know, what does that mean? Um, 
but this is the sort of thing that people tell me all the time because I'm I'm the same way, right? I, I'm the same. I think it's good to maintain your distance. I think it's good to keep keep track of the facts um, and to kind of try to assess um, in a in a more detached way which arguments you think are convincing and which arguments you think aren't convincing. Um, in general, I don't think, and you see this on both the left and the right, but you know, I don't think that journalists should be. You know, last summer during the during the during the BLM protest, you know, there are there are some journalists who were pro and some journalists who were anti, right? Mm -hmm. And when you read when you read accounts of the protests based on the name, mm -hmm. you knew what sorts of things were going to be reported, right? Right. Um, and if it wasn't a journalist name you knew, then you could probably figure it out based on the outlet that it came from. Um, and I don't think that this is good. I think a return to the old ways of kind of objectivity and um, detachment would be really healthy. And the idea that there's some sort of myth, um, of course, nobody's perfectly objective, but nobody's perfectly anything, right? right. Um, any ideal, you know, nobody's perfectly progressive either. You know, nobody, nobody's perfectly anything. So the idea that it shouldn't be an ideal that we strive for, um, in how we think about the world and how we how we represent the world and especially in how we how we write and and discuss political issues publicly, um, I think has been has been a net loss. But it's another example of the sort of you know a, a lot of the people pushing this anti-objectivity line. You know, they got it straight from you know it's not like there's some creative you know some some op-ed writer is like oh I have this creative new idea. Very few op-ed writers are trying to generate new ideas, right? Like me and like a few other people. The you know most op-ed writers they think, oh, I remember this class in college where we said that objectivity was like a Western imperial construct or something. So I'm just gonna, I'm just now gonna write that, but do it in reference to like the BLM protest or something like that, or or in reference to Trump running for president or something like that. Um, and so all all of these things just kind of get get refactored. Um, these things that are learned kind of as part of what I would call, at least in that article, a kind of initiation into a guild initiation in college are then kind of refactored and, and uh, reapplied kind of um, to the issues of the day that come up, you know, very, in, in a way, in a very um, uncreative and mechanical way, right? Um, you know, something comes up somebody says we should try to be objective about it and somebody else writes their you know their their think piece about how objectivity is a myth that gets you know a million shares or whatever because people think it's so mind-blowing but people think it's mind-blowing precisely because it's just the same thing that they they learned in college and they're just kind of feeling happy to be able to understand it and participate it in it um mm -hmm. so i think that yeah. So basically, okay. I went on a little rant, getting us back to the guild, um, <laughs> getting us away from the issues that were that will make people hate me. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that the idea that objectivity is a myth, um, I think, has an interesting association with what you're calling, you know, the move away from material politics, um, and the move away from kind of material realities of politics, which used to be the mainstay of the left. Um, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, over a hundred, you know, like Lenin 
in, in the early 1900s, wrote a book about the philosophy of science. I don't know if it was a very good book, but actually some of its arguments have been repurposed by, by modern day philosophers of science um, who are kind of realists about kind of the external world and about science's ability to determine it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always been opposition to kind of idealist, um, I mean that in the philosophical sense, right? Like opposition to sort of um, abstract ideas move history, you know, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences is, um, you know, is a, a traditionalist view, you know, it's a conservative traditionalist view about, it's the title of a book about how, um, you know, medieval Occam, you know, of Occam's razor, William of Occam right. caused all the ills of modern society, right? right. Um, that's a kind of conservative view of the history of ideas. And the leftist view is kind of, is, is the Marxian view, right? Um, allegedly, that, but yeah, I allegedly, but, but yeah, it's very, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's become very, um, and in a way when I was writing the, cause I'm not, I'm not really at heart a Marxian. I, I don't think of myself as being, you know, doctrinaire in any way. And I'm certainly not politically involved. Um, nobody could, nobody, nobody could accuse me of having any political virtue whatsoever on any side. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't help anybody, you know, I just kind of write my stuff and hope that people like it. Um, but, you know, part of the reason that I wrote what I wrote over the summer was just that for years, I've been staring at what I view as this immense gap, right? This immense gap on the left to articulate and it's not wholly you know there are people in it like adolf reed is somebody in it right um oh, i was but, just gonna mention him to you and what he was dealing with over his being pretty much i mean not officially blacklisted but he was kicked out earlier last year from the uh philadelphia and new york uh, from the dsa right exactly all because he pointed to something that is alarming to me there is a rise of racism within the left. I'm sorry. I call race essentialism racism. And I'm using a definition that has been given to us by the wonderful Anthony Appiah. He talks about uh -huh. this in his book, In My Father's House, which I love him. Everyone to, yeah, me too. Oh, great. Great philosopher. Philosopher Wonderful. he is. Great yep. philosopher. Exactly. And that book really impressed me. I taught that a lot too. But I tell you, we have got to really snap out of it because the left is looking like the more racist you know yeah and race right obsessed now. and and there's you know i saw somebody i've seen a bunch of people say these things on twitter and sometimes in essays um but i i see this expressed often people who really are on the left and are progressive and they say things like i sometimes wonder if being taught to like think about race constantly actually made me more race you know like yeah. i actually notice more now what race people are and that like without me wanting it to that leads me you know to form certain opinions about them and i think i think that the colorblindness which appia you know in in the 90s appia developed a position that's called race limitativism in mm -hmm. in philosophy right just yeah. there isn't any such thing as race right there's no biological kind that justifies the way that we talk about race so there just isn't such a thing as race um, and this was kind of the philosophical version of what you might call the, the racial ideology of 90s liberalism, which was colorblindness. And I think colorblindness was very underrated, right? Mm -hmm. I think 
Okay, some people say colorblindness, it doesn't get us every outcome that we want, right? Because there are still historical inequities and this and that, right? That's very yeah. true. But you have to think about what you replace it with, right? And I think what colorblindness has been replaced with causes problems that are worse than the problems of colorblindness. And I think that the inequities that colorblindness might not be able to address can be addressed in universalist ways and without racialized language, right? There are yeah. things like, and of course, maybe there's some aspect of the problem that you end up under underestimating that way, um, but you also avoid causing these other problems, right? Yeah. Um, I think there are ways, and you also avoid inconsistencies, right? The, the people who are so in favor of criminal justice reform, but then, there's a white offender and they, they say, you know, lock, he should be shot. You know, I hope, I hope all these awful things happen to him in prison and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just suddenly, you know, all this hatred comes out, right. That is so at odds with the principles that they've expressed. So I think colorblindness is underrated. Universalism is underrated. All these great things from the 90s, you know, really, I'm just a guy who grew up in the nineties and wishes we could go back. Right. We believed yeah. in objectivity. We believed in colorblindness. Um, and, um, and the music was better. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so, so it was, it was all much yeah. better in the nineties. That's my view. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, the people in philosophy who disagreed with Appia, you know, the, the now prevailing view is this social construction view that race, race is real. We kind of make it real but it's not any less real because it's our thing, right? So you have to be aware of race. You have to talk about race. We're not gonna stop talking about race because we've made it real by a social construction, right? Right. A lot of this is very, you know, what is meant by social construction, very, very variable from one person to another can be, can move from a very vague reading to a very precise reading very quickly. Um, and I, uh, I just don't, I, I think that the old position was better. I think that the eliminativist position um, was better. Um, and uh, yeah, I do think that there's there's a rise of race essentialism and Reed in his way is is like me, a throwback. Obviously he's a, he's a committed Marxist, which I'm not, um, but I think he has the same view that in a way where going we've gone backwards on some of these issues in the way we talk about them, but also the way we think about them. And also um, in the positions we, we advocate uh, about them. Um, Reed is also, I talked about the distraction early, the distraction theory earlier, right? The distraction theory of identity politics. Reed is also a proponent of the distraction theory, right? Like Reed, mm -hmm. Reed's view on anti-racism is um, you're just rearranging deck chairs, right? You're rearranging mm -hmm. deck chairs on the Titanic. You want, you say, oh, wouldn't it be great if like there were more like proportionally more of the immiserated, you know, miserable, impoverished people of America? Wouldn't it be great if more of them were white? Um, and wouldn't it be great if more of the CEOs were black? And Reed, and Reed just thinks that this is like, this is like politically insufficient or maybe not even, you know, not only insufficient, but politically um worth opposing if if this is your if this is your agenda reed thinks this is the agenda of the 
black managerial neoliberal middle class or whatever you know i don't i don't know class terminology i don't know i don't understand i don't really completely understand what a pmc is i think if, if there is such a thing as a, of a, as a professional managerial class i'm undoubtedly a member of it um, well he's in a way i think the professional managerial class fits very well into what you write about with the guild oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah the you know, guild is definitely insofar as there is a pmc and there is a guild they're like the PMC is like the class whose ideology and mannerism and thought process is what I call the guilt, right? So there's definitely an association with that. And it's not at all a coincidence that my piece on the guild was in the bellows, which is one of the main outlets for kind of anti-PMC leftism. Um, mm -hmm. I, well, we've got also the fact that a lot of the people who are speaking out in the name of uh, race equality or equity, depending on how you want to read that, but like BLM, you know, I wrote a piece earlier, uh, well, last year, last summer, about how, you know, many of the founders of BLM are themselves, I mean, they're they're not poor black women. Right. And there's uh, an entire agenda even in there within trans politics and so forth. I mean, that's all been discussed, but you know, one of them, uh, has been associated with uh, the Aspen Institute, which has ties to the Defense Department. I mean, we need to start looking about where the left is because that's not so left. And it's, it's, there's a lot of race essentialism there, not that they don't have, when I say they, I mean the participants, not necessarily the organizers, not that they don't have their heart in the right place. Yeah, it's great to recognize our history. But when I was interviewing Glenn Lowry on this show a few months ago, he said to me something that really, you know, resonated with me. He says, why are we talking about slavery? Why are we talking about Jim Crow? You know, I, I think a lot of people are sick of the rinse and repeat of our neuroses at this point, our need to talk about race all the time. Let's talk about something else, you know? Like, really, let's talk about something else. People uh, in, in good faith went to the streets last summer. I don't disbelieve that. And and for very and for some very good reasons. Absolutely, you know, for some very and good reasons. And it would be a lie to say that there aren't problems of racism, not just within the United States, but within many countries. We got that. But I don't know if talking about racism in the way that we're framing it is a helpful from a mm -hmm. philosophical and spiritual level, and b going to get us anywhere. We've been here before. And I also think that the exiling of certain voices such as John McWhorter's mm -hmm. and, and Glenn Lowry's and, right. and, and Reed's. The black guys at Blogging Heads, they're great. Yep. Yeah, and, and let me tell you, I have written for Black Agenda Report. I'm here to tell you that I have stopped writing for them because the editor wrote me a piece. When I wrote an article last year, I invoked the name of of uh, one of the above mentioned people. And mm -hmm. I was told that I have assholes for friends. Mm -hmm. And why are you talking about he's right wing or whatever. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. hmm. So now there's a prescriptive way that I can write about mm -hmm. people of color for the Black Agenda Report. And I was really offended by this. And I frankly found it racist. And I cut ties. And I really Yeah, understandably, yeah. They are great. There's some, even the person who wrote me this, I really like him, but I found the comment offensive. I found the uh, stonewalling me to discuss like 
never happened. And then, you know, I just thought this isn't the road I want to be on. I actually have probably a lot of dis- discussions to have in disagreement with, you know, laureates and McWhorter about things that, you know, I, I can't even pull out of the hat right now. But so what? I am sort of over and in a way, this is a uh, mea culpa for my younger self as well. Yeah. That this uh, this notion that we can't have a discussion unless it begins with Oliver. You're such a fascist. Right. Why did you use Helvetica font or you know a more serious note? Um, I think we need to un- argue in good faith and understand that yes, there are assholes out there, but a lot of people, including people that we have previously branded as fascists, neo-Nazis, TERFs, what have you, that we really need to start listening to people. I, I think the, the, one of the greatest ills of social media, it's made everyone babbleheads and we blah, 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 blah. And I think, I think, I think. But the listening part needs to kick in at some point, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, the experience you relayed sounds awful um and i think that there's this there's this very strange you know well it kind of goes part and parcel because i've had the same thing you know i've had the you know back when so i had a period 2015 2016 before i started writing publicly but when i was kind of expressing these things to friends and on facebook like within my group and things like that um in private conversations or at parties and things like that um and I really, I was a bit, you know, a lot of my friends just, you know, left me for my friends from this small liberal arts college and even some friends from high school, um, you know, just, uh, you know, all you've, you've become problematic. You have all these strange views now. Um, and one of the, you know, it's funny that the names we mentioned, right? Because, you know, somebody said, you know, Oliver, it, does, it just doesn't sound like you read any black writers, right? It doesn't sound like you have, you know, uh, like you've actually read any black writers on race. And I was, you know, like, some of my favorite writers are, you know, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Adolf Reed. And it's, oh, no, 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 they don't count. You know, that doesn't count. Um, and it's amazing. Like, it's amazing that people would, that people would say that, right? Like, it's just amazing. It's so much more, it's so much worse, you know, than, than just having a contrary opinion on some issue in which race is involved in, you know, in, in some way to, to have these views about, oh, we're going to exile, you know, like races are these kind of essential groupings that you can be exiled from based on political disagreements and things like that. You know, it's so, that's to me, that is so much more pernicious of a view. And that's the one that I think, um, is encouraged along with all this talk about, um, you know, about, yeah, like I said before, oh, we need to dismantle whiteness or, oh, all this stuff. You've probably seen this stuff. Um, all the, um, you know, uh, white women are the scum of the earth type of stuff. Um, all the, the, the white women who write these kind of cringing, sad articles saying, I'm a white woman and I just want to apologize for white women, you know, all these, all these, why, why do you get to, why would you even think of apologizing for an entire race and sex group? You know, like this is exactly the sort of, you know, I represent my race. I represent my sex. I represent my class. This is exactly the sort of thinking that 
growing up, I thought had luckily become outmoded and had become progressed past the idea that when we see people, we see them as avatars of entire demographic groups um, and not as individuals. Um, and I think this, we, we've returned to, maybe not returned, maybe we've moved on to something new and and different that has just some similarities, but you know, we're, we're in a current place where where there's a lot of encouragement and even coming from, you know, the racialization of what happened on Wednesday, the, oh, all the debates about this, oh, if they had been black, this is, it's literally the first thing that people think when there's a protest with a lot of white people is, let's talk about what would have happened if they had been black people, right? There's no, you know, it's, it's just all of this very, and it's all incredibly counterfactual. Mm-hmm.